Greetings, fellow listeners. Irv Lindsay here. How you doing? In today's podcast, we're going to revisit the 1936 slaying of bride-to-be Frances Marie Brady. Now, I did a podcast podcast about this in detail um, uh, several months ago. And um, when I was doing my research for that particular podcast, um, I do a lot of my research uh, on a particular website online. Uh, and I often find myself sifting through uh, historical documents, census records. Um, I look up land records, uh, you know, genealogy type stuff. Well, I ran into a person that had Francis Marie Brady listed in his family tree. As a matter of fact, he was the only one with her in his family tree. So I tried to contact him at the time. He didn't get the message until recently. And so um, before we visit the conversation that I had with him, uh, he is the great nephew of Francis Marie Brady. So Francis Marie Brady was his mother's aunt, right? All right. So uh, I want to visit a few facts of the case and talk about it. Um, and um, so that if you didn't watch, I, and, and I, if you haven't listened or watched that podcast, uh, if you're on YouTube, a link to it should pop up up there, but I'm really horrible about remembering to go back. So just go to my main channel page, youtube.com slash TV, or wherever you watch, listen to my podcast, and you should see a podcast about a murdered bride. That would be, that would be the one. So, um, in 1936, uh, it was in the fall, the weather was getting cooler, Frances Marie Brady was going to be married the next week, and she and her sisters had a bridal shower for uh, for Frances that, that evening, and they were out later than usual, and they parked their car in an alleyway, probably down the street just a little bit from the house on Oakland Avenue where they were all living together. This was in the middle of the Great Depression, so the fact that these ladies had a home, a house, and a car, and um, two of them actually had jobs, uh, really meant they were doing a lot better off than many other people in the country. They parked their car in an alleyway. Uh, all of most of the blocks had an alley mid mid block that went across to the to an, a, an adjacent block. They parked their uh, their car there and they walked back home. They get to the door at. Uh, uh, there at their home at 2104 Oakland Avenue, and it, it, it jams. And they go to open the door. Uh, they can't open the door because the, the, they can't unlock it. Now, it. Probably is a skeleton key lock that they would have had. Uh, and so uh, Francis, I believe it was Margaret, so Francis goes to open it. She gets it open. She opens the door. Flash of light from a gun, bam, hits her. She dies right there. Nobody ever found out who killed Francis Marie Brady. Um, there's a lot more to the story than that. If you go back and listen to my original podcast, you should be able to catch the entire uh, narrative where I tell the story, talk about the facts of the case, uh, and, and everything else. And uh, but what, what I want to do right now is I want to replay this conversation I had with a family member. Um, and uh, the, the, this, is, uh, this is Chris 
and um, I, I gave him a call and we talked for about 20 minutes. Here is about 10 minutes of the conversation that has to do with the the facts of the murder. And he talks about information that was passed down to him from his mother. Um, so tell me, tell me what you know about uh, about the case. So um, we had when I my earliest memories of hearing about it when I was a little little kid. We had all the newspaper clippings, and uh, and my aunts, two of the two of the, I mean the two other witnesses, right, Elsleen and and uh, and Aunt Margaret were still alive when I was a little boy, but they never talked about it. It was it was just something that we talked about, you know, with my parents and at home. But they were they they were they just never talked about it because it was too traumatic for them. I can imagine. Um, but they were so Fanny was engaged to be married. Can't remember the man's name off the top of my head. I want to say Donnelly or Don Donaldson or. Um, it's, in the, it's in the accounts. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's in it's in the book in the chapter too. He, they talk about him at length, and the reason why he was ruled out was because um, somebody had made a phone call to him at home, and he had answered the phone like within within minutes of the murder. And back okay. then, if you answered your phone, that was a hard-wired line, and it was pretty much yeah. proof you where you were. So, well, see, you know, actually, you know more than I do. But this is so. So they were they were at a bridal shower, right? Um, and they were returning home. They lived all together in the same house on Oakland and Covington, as you know. Right. And they were returning home, and I I want to say it was Margaret who tried to open the door first. And apparently that door, the, the lock was, was tricky. It always stuck or something. And Margaret couldn't get it open. And Fanny said, oh, here, Margaret, let me do it. And she stepped forward and, and was able to su successfully open the door. And when she did, immediately a, a shot rang out. And, and she turned. They all turned to run. And Fanny turned and went a few couple steps and collapsed. Now, as you know, that house is just almost literally across the street from St. Elizabeth's. So they got her to the hospital pretty quickly, but I think the bullet pierced her um, vital, or vital organs. So even, yeah, I mean, even if that had happened today, she had, the chances of surviving were right were very low. Right. So that's all I know about the actual circumstances of the, the shooting. Now, the the I know that in that house, the way it was described to me. When you when you came in, there was a landing. There was there were stairs straight ahead that led up onto a landing. So what they believed is that the gunman was standing on that landing when he was surprised by them coming home, and in his being startled, he just shot. So he's in other words, the trajectory of the bullet came down from he was up on a landing, so it it hit the angle right. trajectory. Um, that's the only other thing I know. Well, I, I, I only I only recently saw a map of the house, uh -huh. um, and it was posted by the author of the book when he saw my post about I was excited that I had gotten a hold of a member of the family uh, to talk to about this, and he had yeah. posted a map that he had of the house, uh, which wasn't in his book. I don't remember seeing it, and I, I, I researched at length. There were two stairways. There was one that led up to the landing from the living room, and there was another one that led down into the kitchen 
Yeah. The, so it, so my, my understanding of it was that you went up onto that landing and then that's how you turned and went up the stairs to the, where the bedrooms were. But then the landing on the other side went down into the kitchen. Yeah. So there's actually two sets of stairs. One yes, that went up, exactly. up from the living room or the foyer. I'm sorry, from, from where the front door was and one that went down back into the kitchen. So exactly. the, the question was if, if the, if the gunman was startled, why he didn't run down the back of the stairs into the kitchen and out the back door and escape, which he obviously right. did. Right. Why did he shoot? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a very good question. <laughs> um, the, so, the, I mean, these are just, this isn't uh, relevant to the case, except that in family lore, um, she was laid out in her wedding dress. Right. In the, in the living room of the house, which is what they did in those days. Okay. And my my one aunt, not my great aunt, but my mother's twin sister, um, they're both unfortunately deceased now, but she she remembers that very vividly. They were like, they would have been like 13 or 14 years old at the time. Okay. But she said it was just a, an awful scene, um, obviously. And the fiance at one point kicked Fanny up out of the casket and sobbing said, who, who did this to you, Fanny? Tell me who did this to you. Um, yeah, it's just heartbreaking. And yeah. apparently he never, he never recovered from that. Yeah, that, that's horrible. My understanding. Um, so fast forward several years later, my mother told me this, and that is that she, we lived on, um, uh, on Arcadia Avenue in Fort Mitch in Lakeside Park, really, Kentucky. Okay. okay. And one of our neighbors was, uh, my mother said, a newspaper man, right? He worked for either the Kentucky Inquirer or the Kentucky Post. And what he told my parents was that the chief of police of the Covington Police Department at that time was, was corrupt. And he had a... a a bunch of guys and he got them to go and do these burglaries for him their mo was that they will they looked in the newspaper to see uh the the wedding listings they knew that they identified these houses as good places to rob you know this is the height of the depression too right right so um i mean i i thought that I thought that the whole time that that I was researching this case, that not not only were we in the in the middle of the Great Depression, but um, these ladies had a car and a home, and yeah. two of them had jobs. Now yeah. you can correct me; they worked at the same place, right? They were, or for the same employer. Uh, it's what it looked like. The, so Aunt Margaret worked for the telephone company at one point, but but. Um, Aunt Margaret and Elsing for for now this is my oldest sister could probably remember this, but they also worked for the same um, man who was who lived in Cincinnati and he was Jewish and he owned a um, I want to say he owned a clothing store. Right, they were bookkeepers yeah, they were or something, right? Women. Yeah, stenographer was the word that the that the census um, used. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well. So the theory was that this, uh, that the, the, the police department of Covington at the time was, was corrupt. There's no doubt about that in my mind. <laughs> and that they, and that that's, that's part of the reason why the case never got solved. They probably, 
you know, suppressed evidence or, you know, that this is a fam- family theory now. This I don't have any other basis for this. Understand. But this newspaper man told my parents that he had reason to believe that the chief of police was behind this this series of robberies where he, you know, got these guys to go into these homes that he knew were there you know there was a a wedding coming up so he knew there'd be loot in there right and they did in fact have wedding gifts in the house well i thought the same thing when i was researching i was like well it can't possibly be a coincidence that there was someone in the house yeah at the time that they were out at a wedding shower which would have been i think would have been public knowledge that there was a wedding and probably the wedding shower would have been pretty easy to know. That's why I thought, like, and a lot of people um, think in what uh, in the the chapter on uh, on this in Queen City Gothic, J.T. Townsend um, s- supposes that it was probably either somebody that knew them, uh, not not personally, but was connected in some way that had knowledge that there was going to be a shower that night. But well, that's the that's the other thing is that which would answer your question as to why he shot. If Fanny got a good look at him. Right. Yep. But it all happens so fast. That's the thing. So either this is somebody who was not used to doing this and was already scared, right? Yeah. And so he just got startled and sh- and shot, right? I mean, it was like the kind of thing where you, know, you didn't even think about it. He just fired. Yeah. You know that they maybe they locked eyes, and his first reaction was just to shoot rather than to run. Yeah. So what you're saying about the police department, that does link in with um, another podcast I did um, about the same time I did the podcast on this case where I talked about the um, the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. And I never went into details about it. And, um, you know, but um, a lot of the law enforcement back then was connected to the mafia who had a huge presence in northern Kentucky during this period of time. And something like that wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't shock me to hear that something like that had happened. Do you know who the newspaper man was that made that statement? I wish I did. Okay. Um, he, he was a neighbor. So, and this would have been, you know, I can ask my oldest sister if she knows or remembers. But, um, okay. I mean, have lived in Lakeside Park near us on Arcadia. Okay. Back in the fifties and sixties. Oh, okay. Alrighty, sir. Well, uh, I'll I'll let you go, and uh, I'll work on editing this into a video. Probably won't be released until probably next month on my okay. channel. Okay. Yeah. Let me know. That'd be great. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. You too. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Wow. Um. All I can say is those are some serious allegations that um, the family believed the police department was in on it. Um, I've certainly seen no evidence of that. However, in my research of politics of Cincinnati region, including especially northern Kentucky, um, it would not surprise me. I know that the um, officials, most of the law enforcement officials had been paid off. Most government officials had probably been paid off. And I've never gone into this on my channel because um, 
some of the officials from the 70s, from the Supper Club fire, that allegations are made, um, some of those guys are still alive and in power today, and I don't want to get into that. <laughs> but it would not surprise me. I don't know who the police chief was. Um, you know, this, this is, it's it's interesting. And, um, and uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, I am going to let, I'm going to think about this before I come back and, and, um, and talk more about this and, and, and go into more detail about this. Um, so now that I've had time to digest this, to really think about it, um, a few things in my mind, and I've been thinking about this ever since the podcast. Um, when I announced online that I had had contact with a family member, was going to interview them, um, J.T. Townsend, the author of Queen City Gothic, um, had posted a picture of the layout of the house. And it, the, the, the coroner's report, as was published in the newspaper, said, if, if, if I'm remembering, it's been a while since I read all this stuff, that the, the bullet came down, went in through one of her shoulders, I guess it would be on, on the left side, went down through the shoulder and did its damage on the way down and hit vital organs. I think it hit her heart on the way down and <clears throat> got lodged in her liver. <clears throat> um... And so, if you look at the map of the house, and I, and I threw it up while we were talking, I, I, I threw up a few images uh, that are from the original podcast that I still have in my archive. But I want to throw that image of the house, the layout of the house up again, because you can see, in order for her to be hit from above, by a bullet and go down to her heart, it went from her heart to her liver, if I'm remembering what they said, uh, in order for it to go from your heart to your liver, it have to go down a pretty steep angle. So she just didn't take a step inside the house and get shot. She flicked the light on. She walked several steps into the house. Her sisters were right behind her, but maybe not quite inside yet. And she got hit. So I'm thinking that she didn't even see the guy up on the landing. Or I'm assuming it was a guy. It could have been any gender and she walked into the house, looked up, and went, oh. And when she saw the guy, the person, that's when he fired his gun. Probably the speculation is that she recognized him. That's the speculation. Why he would shoot her rather than just run. Um, it, it, maybe he was new. Maybe he, um, you know, who knows? Who knows who it was? Uh, so I've never been inside the house, but um, yeah, there, it's, it's interesting. There are two sets of stairs, one that goes up from the foyer, from the, where the front door is, and another that goes immediately back down into the kitchen. You could go up those stairs and reach the bedrooms from either the back of the house or the front of the house. That's convenient, and that was also convenient for our gunman on this fateful night. Uh, the rest of the story can be can be heard in my original podcast, and that would be Podcast 105. Uh, I believe it's titled The Francis Marie Brady Murder, 1936, if you're accessing it from one of the podcast websites. Uh, and, of course on YouTube, on my website, youtube.com slash irvtv. 
Um, I will occasionally do new podcasts, but uh, I did this one because the opportunity presented itself. I never, you never know when the next podcast might be. I appreciate you listening or on YouTube. I appreciate you watching. Everybody, enjoy the rest of your week. Keep fighting a good fight, and I will see you in the next video.